Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1? There's a sense of urgency in Paul's words as he opens this letter to Rome. In verse 10, Paul says he's praying to come. In verse 11, he says he's longing to come. In verse 15, he says he's eager to come and preach the gospel. And why is that? Well, as we saw in the first section in chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, it's because the gospel is real. Paul says in verse 16, it's the power of God unto salvation. And Paul is anxious to come to Rome and beyond and unleash that power. But what really adds the note of urgency is introduced in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this really begins the second section of this book, which runs through chapter 3, which is that the gospel is necessary. And this morning we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And these verses really fit into the framework of a courtroom scene. The case is God versus man. The charge is that man has deliberately rejected God. The prosecutor is Paul. The defendant is all of humanity. Our only plea is at the end of verse 20, we are without excuse. The verdict is guilty. And the sentence in verse 32 is that we are worthy of death. And in the rest of this passage, Paul spells out the overwhelming evidence against us. I have entitled this section, Fresh Out of Excuses. As we said at the beginning of this study, the book of Romans is the greatest treatise of the gospel ever written. And I think it's important for us to notice how Paul begins. As he lays out the gospel for the people in Rome, what is the starting point? Well, it's verse 18. The wrath of God. You see, Paul knew what many preachers have forgotten today. And that is you will never appreciate the good news until you understand the bad news. The good news is that God has provided salvation. The bad news is that you need it. Now there's a popular conception today among preachers that what I need to do is figure out what you think your greatest need is and then speak to that need. It's called felt needs. For one person, it might be the felt need of getting your marriage together. For another person, it might be the felt need of how to raise your kids. For another person, it might be the felt need of an addiction in your life. Now, that's all well and good to meet people where they're hurting, and I'm all for that. But as a preacher, I have to understand that God has already told me what your greatest need is. And I'm not going to wait until you feel it to tell you about it. You see, your greatest need is that you stand guilty before an angry God. And that is, that understanding is what gave Paul his sense of urgency. For a country that has in God we trust on its money, we seem to be pretty confused about what kind of God we trust. Because you can talk today all about God until you start talking about God's wrath. And then people get real uncomfortable. And really they should. Because what is God angry about? Look at verse 18 again. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's Paul's way of saying all kinds of sin. God is angry about man's sin. You say, oh, but God is a loving God. And a loving God would never get angry. Well, let me ask you something. Do you ever get angry? Well, let me ask you this. Can I assume that every time you get angry, it's because you don't love? No. For instance, if you have a daughter and your daughter is kidnapped and raped and killed, I would expect you to get angry. And the reason you would get angry is because of love. You see, you show me a person who never gets angry, and I'll show you a person who doesn't have love. Because one of the reasons we get angry is because we care so much. When a couple wants to come see me for marriage counseling, I always hope that they're arguing. Because if they come in and they're arguing about their marriage, that tells me they care about it. If one or more of them come in and they're apathetic and there's no angry anger, then I get nervous about that relationship. You see, anger is many times a sign of love. Now, why does God get angry at sin? Because it destroys life. It twists creation. It damages what God has made. He made this perfect world and now He looks on it and He sees wars and hatred and violence and prejudice and injustice. Of course God gets angry. If God didn't get angry, then God doesn't care. Now when we talk about the wrath of God, it's not talking about Him blowing His top and uh, you know, losing control and throwing things around the room. There are several Greek words for anger. The two most common are the word thermos, from which we get our ther word thermometer. It literally means a blast of anger, sudden temper, explosive anger. And then the other word is orge, which means controlled anger. It refers to an anger that is settled and not impulsive. And that's the word that Paul uses here. You see, God gets angry, but he never loses control. And I want you to notice what Paul says about God's wrath. It says, the wrath of God is revealed. Now, it doesn't say the wrath of God will be revealed. It says it is revealed, present tense. Now, how is God's wrath already being revealed in this world today? Well, obviously, he's not saying that God's ultimate judgment has been poured out. Because Paul says in Acts 17.30 that God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. The day of judgment is still future. But what's interesting is that Paul uses the same word that he uses in verse 18 back in verse 17. In verse 17 he says the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, how is the righteousness of God revealed? The righteousness of God is revealed in that God has already put His righteousness to your account and it's already beginning to bear fruit. In the same way, God has put His wrath upon unbelievers. 
And it's already starting to bear fruit. That's why Jesus said in John 3.36, He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's a vivid picture. It's like the wrath of God is all dammed up and it's resting over the top of unbelievers and it's ready to just explode. And it's already bearing fruit in their lives. It's already having effects in their lives. And we're going to see in this passage some of those effects as they work their way out. Now, what is the object of God's wrath? Well, it's expressed in two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness means living as if God doesn't exist. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be an atheist. You can believe in God, but you can act like he doesn't really matter. You can believe that God is out there, but he really doesn't make any difference in your life. That's practical atheism. So ungodliness means living as though God doesn't exist. Unrighteousness means living without any rules. That's when you do your own thing. That's when you become your own judge. That's when your guiding compass in life is your own selfishness. That's when your guiding principle in life is do unto others before they do unto you. So unrighteousness is living without any rules. So ungodliness is a sin against God. Unrighteousness is a sin against man. And these two terms really form the outline for this passage. Because in verses 19 to 23, Paul is going to lay out the evidence for man's ungodliness. And then in verses 24 to 32, he's going to lay out the evidence for man's unrighteousness. And in keeping with the courtroom scene, he's going to say, man is guilty. And Paul's going to show us that we have three counts of ungodliness and three counts of unrighteousness. And by the way, it's no coincidence that ungodliness comes before unrighteousness. Because if you don't have your vertical relationship right, then you're not going to have your horizontal relationships right. If you're not right with God you're not going to be right with other people. First of all, man is guilty of ungodliness in verses 19 to 23. Now, if if Paul's going to say we're guilty of ungodliness, that is, acting as if God doesn't exist, he first has to establish the premise that God has revealed himself. And that's what he does in verse 19. Notice, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, Paul points out three things about the way God has revealed himself. Now, I want you to notice what they are. First of all, it's unmistakable. Verse 19 says, it is evident. And if you slide down to verse 20, it says, it is clearly seen being understood through what has been made. Paul says it's plain to see. All you have to do is look around at creation. You know, I can go out in my yard right now and I can see beautiful flowers blooming in my mulch beds. I've got a bird's nest in the top of my weeping willow or my weeping cherry with little chicks in the nest. I can stand there in my yard and see the thrill of the sunrise. 
I can look up in the sky and I can see the clouds moving across. I can look up at night and I can see the stars. And I see God's handiwork all around. We live in a, in a great time when, when we have had the advantage of all the studies in astronomy. And I can look up in the sky at night and I can see the stars and I happen to know that one of the brightest stars up there that looks a little red is a star that we have named Betelgeuse. It's 880 quadrillion miles away. And it's a thousand times bigger than our sun. Its diameter is 200 million miles. Now, to give you an idea how big that star is, that's bigger than the orbit of the Earth. You see, God has placed us in a theater. It's got surround sound and surround video. And this theater is revealing both the existence and the glory of God. In Psalm 19:1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Why is it that people say, I feel so close to God when I'm out in nature? Well, it's because God has revealed himself in nature. And Paul is saying that you can't walk around on this planet and then one day say, you know, there just weren't enough clues to tell me of the existence of God. You see, if you stumbled onto a car, it would never even occur to you that there was no designer. If you found a watch, it would never occur to you that there was no designer. When you turn on your TV, you know that somebody made that. Obviously not in the United States, but somebody made that. You see, simple cause and effect will lead us to conclude as we walk through this glorious theater that there's a designer, there's a creator. It's unmistakable. And then secondly, it's understandable. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Paul tells us there are several things that we can understand about God from creation. Even if you don't have a Bible, there are certain things in creation that are spelled out. The first one he mentions is that he is eternal. Verse 20, his eternal power. You know, one of the things that's obvious about this universe is that it is vast. It's huge. Our sun is 93 million miles away. Now, to give you an idea of how far that is, if you went by car and drove straight through, it would take you 193 years to get there. The sun is 93 million miles away. Now, let's assume that one inch represents 93 million miles. With one inch, here's the earth, here's the sun. With one inch representing 93 million miles, to get to Pluto on the outside of our solar system would take 39 and a half inches. But if you wanted to get to the nearest star besides our sun, and that's the star named Alpha Centauri, with every inch representing 93 million miles, you would have to 
walk out the door and down the road 4.3 miles to get to the nearest star. Now, our solar system is just one among millions. We live in the Milky Way. You know what the nearest solar system is? The nearest solar system is the large Magellanic Cloud, with every inch representing 93 million miles. If you want to get to the nearest solar system, you would have to go out the door, down the road, past the 4.3 mile mark, and you would have to circle the Earth six times to get to the nearest solar system. Or, if you could travel at the speed of light, light travels 186,000 miles a second. That's moving. You would pass the moon in a second and a half. If you could travel 186,000 miles a second, the speed of light, you know how long it would take you to get to the nearest solar system? 150,000 years. And when you got there, you would not even be off the front porch of this universe. And I think there's a clear message in that. If this universe is so vast that we could never even get to the boundaries of it, then it should be obvious to us that the one who created it has no boundaries. He is eternal. Second, he is powerful. It says in verse 20, his eternal power. You know, I've always wanted to operate one of those earth-moving machines. I think it's a guy thing. You know, if it, you want to get on there and feel the power of that thing. It's kind of macho. Those things have about 420 horsepower. You know, on any given day, there are about 1,800 storms in the world. And someone figured out that the energy needed to generate those storms is 1.3 billion horsepower. Our sun consumes 4 million tons of matter every second. And its radiated energy, the energy it gives off, is equivalent to 500 million, million, billion horsepower. And that's just one little star among trillions of stars. And we think we're powerful. What's that say about God? You know, Theodore Roosevelt used to do something very significant. On a day when he had what he called very important talks, he would go out in the evening with a friend and stand on the front lawn and look up at the constellations. And they would find Pergasus and then search along the lower left-hand corner for a spot of light mist. And then his friend would say, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It's one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of billions of suns, each one larger than our sun. And then after he talked for a little while, Roosevelt would grin and interrupt him and say, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. From creation, we understand the power of God. And then the third thing we understand is His divine nature. Verse 20 says, For since the, crea since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes and divine nature have been clearly seen. You know, this summer, 
rather than taking your kids to Disney World, why don't you take them out into God's creation? Take them to the ocean, take them to the mountains, take them to a cave, take them to the zoo, take them to the planetarium, let them raft down a mountain river, let them snorkel near a coral reef, and when they get done, then sit them down and say, now what did you learn about God today? And they'll say things like, he's powerful, he's colorful, he's in control, he's obviously organized, he's been around for a long time, he's got a sense of humor, he's faithful, he's kind, he provides for even his smallest creatures. In fact, listen to what Paul said to the pagans in Lystra in Acts 14, 17. He said, God did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and, and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You see, creation not only reveals to us that God exists, it reveals to us that God is good. It's not only unmistakable, it's understandable. And then thirdly, it's undeniable. The end of verse 20 says, so that they are without excuse. We don't even have a defense. There's no sense in us taking the stand. God's case against us is airtight. The evidence is overwhelming. Now, I've been to the Grand Canyon. I've been to Niagara Falls. I've been to the Rift Valley in Africa. And when you go to those marvelous wonders of the world, one of the things that's universal is that as you stand there, if somebody walks up who's never seen it before, you know what they inevitably say? Oh, my God. That's interesting. Because in that moment... There's no mystery about who made it and who gets the credit for it. You see, I'm convinced that one of the reasons God made those majestic wonders of the world is because he wanted to say to some of us who are a little thick, get a clue. You know, you, you may say, he may say, well, I, you know, I missed the sunrise because I'm a night person, but you can't miss this. You know, you look at these wonders and go, wow. God is amazing. And Paul says, you're without excuse. Nobody's going to stand before God someday and say, I didn't know. It wasn't clear. There weren't enough clues. I had insufficient evidence. No, Paul says God has made it so clear that man is without excuse. God has revealed himself in creation. But what has man done with that revelation? Well, Paul says three things, and these are the three counts of ungodliness. First of all, man represses the truth. Verse 18, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That Greek word means to hold down, to restrain. When I was a kid, we used to play tag in the swimming pool with a volleyball. And if you were it, you had the volleyball, and you would try to hide the fact that you were it by suppressing the volleyball under the water. But when you were a little guy, that wasn't easy to do. So you were sitting there struggling, trying to keep that ball down. And after you played for a little while, you figured out who was it because it was always the kid who was struggling in the water. Paul says that's what men have done with the truth. They push it down. They are intellectually dishonest. 
And I think the classic example of that is evolution. Evolution is just that. It's, it's what it calls itself, a theory of evolution. It's a theory. And whether you accept evolution or creation, you have to do so by faith. Because there's no way to prove either because nobody was there. But which one of those is banned from our schools today? You see, man is suppressing the truth. And why is he doing that? Paul says he does it in unrighteousness. You see, I'm convinced that evolution is not really an issue of intellect. It's an issue of morality. Because if I can come up with a theory that eliminates God, then that eliminates my responsibility for my actions. You see, the, the appeal is not intellectual. Nobody wants to conclude that their great uncle is a monkey. The appeal is moral. If I came from an animal, then I can act like an animal and there'll be no repercussions. And so the first thing he says we do with that truth of creation about God is we repress the truth. Secondly, man rejects the truth. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Man doesn't just repress the truth about God, he rejects it. And how do we do that? Well, Paul mentions in a couple ways. He says, first of all, we refuse to give Him glory. That's what evolution is all about. It's an attempt to take the glory away from God for creating the world. People would rather believe that this all happened by accident than to give God glory. You see, the real issue is it comes down to a refusal to bow before God. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush aflame with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Man rejects the truth, first of all, by refusing to give glory to God. Secondly, we refuse to give thanks to God. See, no matter how smart or dumb you are, anybody can give thanks. And Paul says man refuses to do that. Ungratefulness is ungodliness. Does it hurt you when you do something for someone and they don't even say thanks? Sure it does. Well, it hurts God too. Now, I was watching a, a golf tournament the other day and, and uh, the commentator said after there was a favorable bounce off a tree, he said he can thank the golf gods for that. And then immediately they switched to a second commentator and he said, you know, we're having wonderful weather today. We can thank the weatherman. And I thought, well, why don't you just thank God? But see, man refuses to do that because he rejects the truth. And then thirdly, man replaces the truth. Notice the middle of verse 21 but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. 
this is an inevitable sequence. First you repress the truth, then you reject the truth, and finally you replace the truth. You see, whenever men refuse to worship God, they don't stop worshiping. Because God has created you with the capacity to worship. So whenever you stop worshiping God, all you can do is redirect that. And Paul says they have exchanged the glory of God for what? For an image. That's idolatry. And I want you to notice the descending order of those images in verse 23. Man, birds, animals, reptiles. That's like the reverse order of evolution. You know, evolution presents the idea that we were once, you know, little fish swimming around and we grew legs and crawled out on the land and then we sprouted wings and flew up in the trees and then we grew a tail and swung down and pretty soon we started walking upright like men on the earth. Paul says the history of man is not evolution. Paul says we are not on our way up. We are on our way down. Man who has refused to worship the Creator now worships the creatures. And Paul accents that by telling us that we have turned from the incorruptible God to corruptible man. What's the word corruptible mean? It means dying. You say, well, why would we take the glory from the eternal God and give it to temporal man? Why would we bow to this dying, decaying creation rather than the living God? And the answer is found in the terms he uses in verse 21 and 22. He says in verse 21, we become futile, foolish, and darkened. And in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. They are arrogant fools. They start out deceiving, and they end up believing. They start out suppressing the truth, they end up exalting the lie. Let me add a footnote here. When you find an Aborigines tribe of people and they're worshiping stumps, that is not some primitive religion that they are trying to, you know, find God through. They are not on their way toward God. They are on their way away from God. You see, this is the cycle. They knew God, they rejected God, and idolatry is the result of that. It's part of the wrath of God that's already being distributed in the world today. It's already evident in the lives of people today. So there are the three counts of ungodliness. Man represses the truth, he rejects the truth, and he replaces the truth. And then secondly, man is guilty of unrighteousness in verses 24 to 32. Now, I thought about doing this message in two parts, but it's so depressing that I didn't want to do it again next week. So I'm going to go through this rather rapidly. When you repress and reject and replace God, it automatically leads to all kinds of other problems. As I said earlier, when your vertical relationship is not right, you're going to have problems horizontally. So godlessness leads to wickedness. Ungodliness is the root. Unrighteousness is the fruit. And there are three important phrases in the last part of this passage. In fact, one important phrase stated three times, it's that phrase, God gave them over. If you want to understand this passage, you need to underline this, highlight this phrase. It's in verse 24, again in verse 26, and then in verse 28. 
Now, what does it mean when God gave someone over? Well, first of all, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that these people can't be saved. It doesn't mean that there's no hope for them. It doesn't mean that God quits loving them. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you've got an 18-year-old son. He's making a mess of his life. He's into cocaine and methamphetamines and alcohol and he gets drunk and he comes home and he throws up on your carpet. He's living a wild, licentious life with no morals. You finally come to him one day and you say, son, you're 18. I can't run your life anymore. But if you're going to continue to stay at home, you've got to abide by my rules. And if you can't follow my rules, then you're going to have to get out because you're not going to destroy the rest of our family. Now, when your son walks out, what you have done, sadly, is you have given him over to the lifestyle that he wants to live. Now, do you want to do that? No. Are you glad about it? No. But at some point, you have to draw the line and you give him over. That's what the father did with the prodigal son. Father made that agonizing decision, have it your way. You're sure that living in this house and having a relationship with me is something you cannot bear. So load your money belt with my inheritance and get out. And that boy probably burst out of the house saying, I'm free, I'm free. And in a short season, he was acting like an animal, living like an animal, and eating with the animals. You see, he got what he wanted. And God has to do that same thing with people. Sometimes he lets us have what we think we want. Oscar Wilde once said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. There's a certain degree of truth in that. At some point, God answers our prayer when we say, just leave me alone. And God says, all right, I'm going to cut you free to ruin your life. And that's why back in verse 18 it says the wrath of God is being revealed, present tense. It's happening right now. See, God doesn't have to send fire and brimstone out of heaven. All he has to do is let go of us and let us reap what we have sown. God essentially punishes sin with sin. That's his wrath like the fellow standing on the top of the Empire State Building saying, I'm free. I can jump off this building if I want to. And he jumps off. And about 20 stories down, somebody yells out the window, how's it going? And he says, so far, so good. You know people like that? They're in a free fall. They just haven't hit the bottom yet. They have an experience. You see, it's a natural thing in God's creation that you will reap what you sow. And that's part of His wrath. When we go away from His standards, we pay the consequences for that. When we break God's laws, God's laws will break us. And Paul says that's evident right away by three things. Right now, by three things. Three counts of unrighteousness. First of all, God gave them over to immoral passions. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. God gave them over to their lusts 
That's what we call today the sexual revolution. We live in a day when there's a casual approach to sex. In fact, a casual approach to sex is the accepted norm today. Someone has said America has lost its ability to blush. And if you don't think this is true, just speak up in the middle of a conversation somewhere and, and say that you believe that casual sex reaps bad consequences. You know what people will tell you? They'll tell you you're old-fashioned. But I want to tell you this morning, there's nothing new-fashioned about sexual sin. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Now, what is the undesirable consequence? He says in verse 24 at the end, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Man who God created in his own image in order to have honor now has gone down to the point where he's reduced to the life of an animal living by base instincts, consumed by lust. You see, when you choose sin, God gives you over to more sin, and that sin dishonors man. People today want to sow their wild oats and then pray that they have no harvest. It doesn't work that way. Man is dishonored by living the way he's living. And then notice verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now in Greek, that literally says they have believed the lie. The lie. Now what is the lie? The big lie that we believe? Well, it's the original lie that Satan fed to Adam and Eve in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3. Remember that? Eve says to the serpent, we can eat from any tree in the garden except the tree in the middle, and God said, you cannot touch it or you will die. You know what Satan said to her? He said, you surely shall not die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Did you get that? There's two parts to the lie. Number one, you can sin and get away with it. You won't die. And number two, you can be your own God. That's the lie that people are still falling for today. You can sin and get away with it. There are no consequences. And you can be your own God. And that's why he says in verse 25 that they have now worshipped and served the creature themselves rather than the Creator. And then the second count of unrighteousness, God gave them over to indecent perversions. You know, the problem with indulging your lusts is that your lusts have insatiable appetites. They're never satisfied. And so self-indulgence leads to further self-indulgence. And when you can't be satisfied one way, you will try to be satisfied another way. Notice what he says in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, there's no doubt what he's talking about here, is it? 
He's talking about lesbianism and homosexuality. And the Romans didn't need a whole lot of explanation about this because 14 of the first 15 Caesars were homosexual. This is the next downward step in depravity. Man moves from dishonoring his body to degrading his body. He moves from sexual promiscuity to sexual perversion. People say, well, homosexuality is a natural thing. God made me this way. Well, that's not what God says. Because in verse 26, it says it is unnatural. That literally means it goes against nature. I stayed up too late Friday night watching Nightline because Ted Koppel was having a town meeting in Roanoke, Virginia, and the subject was homosexuality. And he had ministers on the panel and professing Christians on the panel who said that God approves of their homosexual lifestyle. Well, that's not what this passage says. Because verse 27 refers to homosexuality as indecent acts, and it says they will receive the penalty of their error. People say, well, I can't help it. It's hereditary. I didn't make this choice. Well, God says it's a choice. Look at verse 26. It says they exchanged the natural for the unnatural. And verse 27 says they abandoned the natural. Now, understand me this morning. Homosexuality is not an alternative lifestyle. Homosexuality is not a defect. Homosexuality is not a sickness. If it were sickness, God wouldn't judge it. Homosexuality is a penalty. It is God judging man's sin with more sin. It's the result of God giving man over to reap what he has sown. And Paul adds in verse 27 at the end that they are receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now some suggest that that refers to uh, sexually transmitted disease like AIDS and other things and and I'm not sure if that's what Paul had in mind or not, but I think fundamentally what he's saying is, is that they experience the emotional, relational, spiritual, physical nightmares of having descended in that, into that pit of depravity. You see, if you are living your life in an unnatural way, there is no way that you have a proper self-identity and a proper self-worth. One of the greatest misnomers today is the term gay. Because the homosexuals that I know are anything but happy. They're experiencing the penalty of their error right now. And then thirdly, God gave them over to irrational practices. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. God gave them over to a corrupted mind to do those things that are not proper, to do those things that are irrational. And Paul goes on to list 21 different kinds of sins. J. Vernon McGee calls this sinorama. It's a 21 sin salute in verses 29 to 31. And I'm not going to take the time to detail this because, again, it's too depressing. But look at verse 29. He says, they are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, 
The latest FBI report says murders are up 9%, aggravated assaults are up 15%, violent crime is up in the last 10 years 45% in this country. You say, where are we headed? Well, as God gives more and more people over, we're probably going to see more of that. Then he says, strife. That's the lead story on the 6 o'clock news every night. Deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers. Can't keep a covenant. Unloving, unmerciful. You know, a few years ago, I, there was a plane crash in Michigan, a northwest plane, and over 100 people perished. There was only one little four-year-old girl who survived. And the plane crashed on Interstate 94, spreading this horrible carnage all over the place. What shocked me was that within 15 minutes of that plane crash, seven people had been arrested for stealing jewelry off the dead bodies. And I remember thinking to myself, God, how could they get that depraved? And the answer's in our passage. God gave them over. And verse 32 adds, and all they, though they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Although they know the consequences of their actions is death, they not only do it themselves, but they applaud others who are doing it. You know, one of the things that concerns me most about our country is not just that these things exist, because that's to be expected. What concerns me about our country is the way people condone and defend these very things. They are applauding the people who do it. And when Hollywood comes out with a movie with senseless violence and perversion, what do we do? We give them an Academy Award. We applaud it. Now, this is the most depressing text, I think, in the entire Bible. And it paints a bleak picture. The wrath of God is not just coming in a future day. It's already revealed. It's already abiding on unbelievers. It's already bearing fruit in their lives. That's the bad news. But let me close this morning, even though I'm over time, with a positive statement. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. I just can't quit on that low a note. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. See, Paul paints this bleak picture in chapter 1 so when he gets to chapter 5, he can say, we are saved from the wrath of God. Look at one other verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Or, or chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
you were justified. That's a great passage. You know, Paul doesn't say in Romans chapter 1 that God gave up on them. That's what some people think. He says God gave them over. God lets them reap what they've sown in the area of sin. And when you hit the bottom, there's still hope. When you hit the bottom, you can still, like the prodigal, repent and come home. Paul says, such were some of you. And many of you today could come up here and give testimony to that. What's the point of our passage? On the judgment day, the cry of the unbeliever will not be, I didn't know. The cry of the unbeliever will be, I wouldn't bow. Because they are without excuse. You know, Jesus said in the place of judgment, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's hard to understand what gnashing of teeth means. One commentator says that gnashing of teeth is the modern equivalent to a wide receiver who goes down the field and the defender falls down. He finds himself all alone in the end zone. 70,000 people in the crowd. He's on national television. The ball comes to him in the end zone. He's all alone and he drops it. And he goes, ah. He gnashes his teeth. There's painful regret. Well, Jesus tells us there will be gnashing of teeth in hell because believers will be saying, I knew, but I wouldn't bow. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you are suppressing the truth. I want to call you to bow down. See, he's left the clues all over the universe. Bow down. He made himself evident to you bow down. You will stand one day before him without excuse. So bow down. And if you're a believer here this morning, this passage helps us understand why Paul had such an urgency about sharing the gospel. And we ought to be driven today to go out with the same kind of urgency because the wrath of God is already revealed in this world. I'm going to ask the praise team to come and close. I know I'm over time, but please grant me a little bit of patience. I'm going to ask them to play and sing a song. I'm going to ask you to sing it with us as we, as we stand this morning and close. I don't know how God has spoken to you today, but I'm going to give you the opportunity to come and respond to Him. There may be some here today who want to join this fellowship. You come as we sing, but if God has spoken to your heart today, I'm going to invite you to come like the prodigal came and get right with your father.